In today's episode, my guest describes an experience about a client. In our conversation, we change the client's name to protect her identity. Hi, welcome to Help Me to Understand, a podcast where women give their voices to issues of social justice, political activism, giving back, and other topics relevant today. I'm your host, Felicia Garland. As you look around, you can't avoid the fact that we live in an age of political and social divisions, global warming, economic and racial inequality, and a breakdown in many of our social structures. And that was just this morning's news. I find it can be all so confusing, and I bet you do as well. Perhaps you'd like to make a difference in the world, even if only a small one, but you feel you need more knowledge and understanding around the issues we face in order to develop the tolerance, empathy, and compassion you need to become a force for good. It's my mission with this podcast to hear from women who are working every day to make a difference. So welcome, curious listener, to this journey of discovery and understanding. I'm so glad you're here. Together, let's become a force for good. With me today is Trish Perlmutter. She's the Policy Counsel at Partners for Women and Justice, an organization located in northern New Jersey, whose mission is to provide quality legal assistance to low-income victims of domestic violence and their children. Throughout her career, Trish has sought to combat systemic injustice impacting marginalized groups. At Partners, she advocates for improving the justice system to enhance the safety of victims of domestic violence. She serves on the Family Practice Committee of the New Jersey Supreme Court and the Judiciary's Domestic Violence Risk Assessment Working Group. Previously, she was a clinical professor at the Center for Social Justice at Seton Hall University Law School. She holds a BA from Princeton University's School of Public and International Affairs and a JD from Harvard Law School. Hi, Trish. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Felicia. I'm happy to be here. I'm having you here today because I want to speak primarily with you about the recently released report on the impact of COVID-19 on the incidences and severity of domestic violence in New Jersey. And this is a report that Partners for Women and Justice has done in collaboration, I believe, with Seton Hall University Law School. What can you tell me about some of this. Well, let me start with some statistics first, because I think these are, they're grim and rather telling. So I read that in the United States, more than 10 million adults experience domestic violence. And in New Jersey, one act of domestic violence occurs every eight minutes and 29 seconds. Nationally, in 2019, partner violence accounted for 20% of all violent crimes. During that same year in New Jersey, over one quarter of all criminal complaints were domestic violence cases. And I gather this doesn't take into account civil complaints. On a typical day, domestic violence hotlines nationwide receive over 19,000 calls. In New Jersey, children are involved in or present during 28% of all domestic violence offenses. And legal assistance, which is what we're going to talk about today, is one of the most requested services by victims of domestic violence. So against, again, that rather grim backdrop, tell us a little bit about Partners for Women in Justice. Partners is a nonprofit 
public interest law firm that specializes in serving victims of domestic violence in the family courts. Uh, we are staffed with our own attorneys and court advocates, and we also have a robust pro bono program where we work with attorneys from private firms or attorneys who may even be retired on who will take on cases for us as well. We help our clients obtain final restraining orders in New Jersey, as well as related matters of child support, child custody, and safe visitation. Okay. Now those, because you're in family court, just to be clear, a lot of statistics I read were criminal cases because you're in civil, you're in family court. That's a civil, these are civil cases that you're bringing. Let me explain the distinction between a criminal domestic violence complaint and a civil restraining order. In the criminal process, a report is made to the police department. The police may make an arrest. It's then referred to the prosecutor and the criminal system will resolve that case. And although the victim has rights and a role in that system, ultimately the prosecutor and the judge control the outcome. And of course, the, the defense attorney and the defendant of what mm-hmm. happens in that case. By contrast, a civil restraining order is a case initiated by the victim who goes to the family court or may also report and, and seek the restraining order from the police department independent of any criminal charge. Okay. These can be and that, together doing going parallel. They can be simultaneous okay. or what we often, what we find statistically is that victims prefer the civil system for lots of reasons. And so, for instance, in New Jersey, there are about four times as many applications for restraining orders as there are criminal complaints in any given year. That restraining order gives the victim and, in addition, related parties, for instance, children, uh-huh. protection from the defendant. So th- that's kind of typically thought of as a stay away order or uh-huh. prohibition okay. on contact. Uh-huh. And additional benefits can be that the victim has a right to stay in the family home. It's possible for the court to order the defendant to continue to pay rent or to pay financial support to the family if there's an obligation for that. It can include a warrant to search the defendant for weapons and a prohibition on obtaining weapons in the future and can also include the right to residential custody, safe visitation, and child support. So that sounds like it's very, very encompassing when you compare it to perhaps the criminal matter that now the defendant is maybe in the criminal system and the victim is not able to really avail themselves of all these other remedies because the, again, the, the victim is in the criminal, I'm sorry, not the victim, the perpetrator is in the criminal system. For lots of reasons, victims often do not want to get the police involved in their lives, right? And mm-hmm. okay. uh, we have a terrific prevention of domestic violence statute in New Jersey which mm-hmm. gives the victim an opportunity to obtain 
comprehensive relief in one court. So that's a tremendous benefit to our clients. Uh I know from reading about partners that uh, one of the statistics that you, you have mentioned is that a victim who was represented by an attorney is 10 times more likely to get a protective order than a victim without an attorney. And that this is now where partners is really focused on getting to the victim, providing that legal assistance. So we talked a So if I could just add to that, that's correct. Mm -hmm. So we serve low-income victims in New Jersey, most of whom, and and on our family violence docket in New Jersey, most of the victims and the defendants cannot afford counsel. The victim bears the burden of proof, and that burden is to show preponderance of the evidence. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt, but they still have the burden of proof to show that a domestic violence crime occurred, as well as the need for protection going forward. And it's a complex proceeding. It's called Mm -hmm. a summary trial, but someone still needs quite a bit of wherewithal and facility a little bit with the the law to understand what proofs are required, how to Mm -hmm. maybe take their cell phone and turn that into evidence and exhibits that can be offered into court and be accepted as, as evidence, trying to get a copy of the police report or to get the police officer to come testify. There's some difficult obstacles to achieving success. And a lot of our clients also, uh, English is not their first language. They face language barriers. They are also victims who are dealing with trauma. And trauma mm-hmm. can impact how someone appears in terms of their, their credibility. And often a fact finder might feel that the victim's demeanor suggests that maybe they weren't victimized when in fact their facial expressions really reflect sort of years of trauma and and some misunderstanding about kind of what trauma looks like in the courtroom. So for all of these reasons, it's really extremely important to have counsel in these cases. And that's the gap that Partners was founded to fill. And we Uh and and other domestic violence legal services organizations in New Jersey are working to fill that gap. Mm -hmm. And I believe that Partners has both staff attorneys now as well as pro bono attorneys. Is there a distinction between uh, which attorneys provide which service or is it doesn't really make a difference. We have a robust pro bono program. And initially that was our service model when when Partners was founded. We try to give our pro bono attorneys a little bit simpler cases and and cases Uh where the proof are sort of more clear cut because we really want to make sure that our pro bono partners have a good experience and Also, it's a good way of sort of triaging our limited resources. But having said that, we have a cadre of experienced pro bono Mm -hmm. attorneys who come back for more and more and take uh, some quite complicated cases for us. Mm -hmm. And we provide training and second chairing on those cases as well to make sure that every client has, you know, exceptional legal representation. Yes. 
So let's move a little bit to the impact of COVID and the report, but I guess we should probably tee it up a little bit. What was how the difficulties you mentioned, sort of language barriers, not knowing the court system, how to navigate all these procedures would certainly be a significant hurdle to any victim who wants to go to court for to obtain relief. But what are the other obstacles, even before COVID, that a victim would face? I mean, in terms of practically, I mean, the difficulty in getting to a phone maybe or something. I mean, as a practical matter, you know, on the one hand, prior to COVID, access to services was much easier, right? You could walk in to your county's domestic violence services provider and and get advice. You could walk in to the, the family court and get some information. You would be, if you called the police, we have a, in New Jersey, a system of a crisis response team with trained volunteers who could meet with the victim and provide information and referrals. So there were more touch points in terms of connecting victims to services that have been interrupted. By the same token, there were still substantial obstacles and Although in New Jersey, our statute requires that these cases be heard within 10 days, as a practical matter, there were many times that cases, even prior to COVID, would go on for much longer and would require court amendments, going back to court multiple times, finding out that maybe the defendant wasn't served. Sort of essentially, the more time a victim has to take off from work and to Mm -hmm. confront, the abusive defendant and to psychologically prepare for court, we find that that kind of erodes a bit of determination sometimes for some victims. And, uh-huh. you know, that's why sort of having a lot of support and expertise can be especially critical. So I can imagine that with COVID, there would be an impact simply on the number of incidences of domestic violence. But what the report, I believe, is focusing on is now the, um, the pandemic's impact on even getting the kind of relief that, as you said, because of the difficulty in getting to the court system and getting through the process and the courts being, I think, virtually holding, having hearings as opposed to in person and all those challenges. So initially, our plan and I, the report, as you mentioned, uh, was something that was done in collaboration with uh, Seton Hall Law School. And I, my colleague at Seton Hall, Jessica Miles, who's a professor there, initially our focus was really on how the court system, the family court system, as well as the criminal system and the police, how changes in those systems were impacting access to protection and decision-making by survivors. However, as we delved further into our study, we really felt that we couldn't do justice to this topic without bringing to light the economic and health stressors on survivors and their families and how those stressors are both increasing the 
risk of domestic violence, the number of cases, and the severity of those cases, especially for low-income survivors of color, but also at the same time, those stressors were limiting options for leaving. And I think you can see that particularly when you think about shelter. Housing has always been another highly sought after service for domestic violence survivors. But when you're thinking as a victim about whether it's safe or a good idea to leave an abusive situation, when you're worried about a pandemic and the safety of going into shelter, that's a real obstacle right there to to Uh safety. And I think New Jersey's shelter program did an amazing job in readying themselves to take survivors and their children into hotels, motels. Mm -hmm. That's a whole different service delivery model and Mm -hmm. a difficult quandary, I think, for a survivor to navigate whether they'd be better off sticking a situation out or, in fact, better off trying to leave. So those are, are difficult situations. And, you know, what we're seeing in our practice is, you know, both a increased severity in terms of the, the reports of violence, obstacles to getting those temporary restraining orders, very prolonged proceedings from the beginning mm-hmm. of a restraining order case to its conclusion. And then we're also seeing perpetrators try to almost exploit the pandemic as sort of using the pandemic to create other levers of power and control. What kinds of things, could you give a couple of examples of that? What those levers or how that would con- they could control a victim a little differently? We've had a couple cases where simply either the victim's job or maybe even just going to the grocery store led to a defendant going back into court and trying to get custody of the children. We had one case where the victim had a restraining order and at the end of the defendant's parenting time, he refused to return the child because he said that the victim went to the grocery store and therefore was endangering the child. We had another case where the the client was an Instacart worker, very similar set Mm -hmm. of circumstances. We had a case, and this is discussed in the report, with a victim named Tamika, whose partner threatened her with knives. She went to the police. She had to go back three times in order to get a restraining order. The criminal case in that case is almost a year old. It's not been resolved because nothing in the criminal courts are moving It took many, many months to get her the restraining order because the hearing dates kept being postponed. She can't pay her rent. She lost her internet because the service was connected to her partner's name. She didn't have health insurance, so she couldn't get counseling. She's living in fear of eviction. She's put her stuff into storage, and she's really just dealing with so much trauma in the midst of a huge economic crisis that even though on the one hand, her case is a successful one, just the Mm -hmm. number of crises that this victim is trying to battle all at once is so completely overwhelming. 
it sounds as though she's being victimized many, many, many times over. And to have that strength and fortitude to do that, that's uh, unbelievable, sad, sad situation. But I'm glad it sounded as though it had a, at least a, a fairly positive, if there is in that case, kind of a positive outcome. What other sort of basic difficulties, just practically, I mean, Tamika's case sounds unbelievable almost, but just even everybody's stuck at home now during the pandemic. Those sorts of basic issues, how do those impact some of the difficulties that victims might be having reaching out and getting their support they need? Well, I think from a few perspectives, what we're seeing is that it's literally not safe to seek help, right? And I think this was the report shows that particularly during in New Jersey, during the first, say, two months where the strict shelter in place order was put into effect, the hotlines, our, our own intake, everything was silent. And that was terrifying because we know. Was that the red flag that you knew something was was really amiss? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone who works in this area understood that. But to Uh and and I think that we've seen this in natural disasters, like in hurricanes and in other natural disasters, you do see this. But this was a prolonged period where people felt like they could not get help. They could not get Uh out. So organizations wound up pivoting to trying Uh to uh, create chat options using social media to hear from victims. I think they're. For some people, when they went to the grocery store or the pharmacy, that might be a safe place to make a phone call. But we, looking statistically, we saw a real decline and decrease in terms of people reaching out for services. Now that once those orders were relaxed a bit, and especially mm-hmm. later in the summer, I think the demand for services really started to come back up and We certainly saw that at partners. We're also seeing that there are long waiting lists to get mental health care. You know, that that is also Uh a really highly sought after service right now. But children at home are are impacting all of us, right? But particularly, (laughs) you're trying to work, you have to have a job and trying to to get it done. I think particularly low-income survivors are much less likely to have work that can be done remotely. And we see that especially black and brown women mm-hmm. in the state are more likely to have lost jobs to begin with during this economic mm-hmm. crisis. And they're much more likely to have had to also voluntarily reduce their work hours because of not having childcare. I think it increases tension in the home, but also reduces income, right? Mm-hmm. And you have, to be, you have to be able to afford safety, frankly. I, I think we should all be very concerned about sort of the well-being of women in our society and the huge consequences of this pandemic for women and work. And I know it's exciting to see on the cusp of an inauguration, you know, that funding mm-hmm. for childcare and reopening the schools are going to be top priorities for the incoming administration, because I think that that is actually really essential for the recovery of survivors. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Not just 
everyday folk, but certainly those the women that are victims of this. So the, the report isn't just findings about the, the difficulties during the pandemic, but it does also suggest a number or recommend a number of things be done by the state, I guess, primarily. What are those recommendations? We had four primary recommendations. The first is to focus on homelessness prevention and targeted funding for domestic violence housing, which we see as kind of part of a much bigger issue around affordable housing in New Jersey. And we know that the intersection between domestic violence and homelessness is large and and Mm -hmm. that it is really important to be able to provide stable housing in order to support survivors. There are efforts both nationally and in New Jersey to provide eviction protection, but we're worried about what is going to happen when those eviction protections end, Mm -hmm. what is going to happen with the outstanding rent that is due. So there's more work that needs to be done there. We'd like to see expanded resources for mental health care for survivors and for their children. And I think part of our overall message is that I know when the pandemic began, we were all focused on before and after. We can't wait to get back to our life the way it was, right? Whatever that is. But but here we are, and we know that we are looking at a a really long-term trauma and very long-term consequences from this pandemic. And so kind of how do we use this moment to rethink our priorities as a country, as a state, as a community in order to promote healing? We have recommendations around the collection of data in our Mm -hmm. society. You know, we count what matters. And we found, although we had excellent support from the Office of the Attorney General and from the Administrative Office of the Courts and from the Division on Women in New Jersey, there are some improvements that could be done with respect to how domestic violence data is collected, how that data is shared in a timely way, and how it's utilized in order to develop best practices. And then our fourth uh, recommendation has to do with addressing structural racism and inequality. We know that domestic violence affects people from all walks of life. Doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, but there is a high correlation between severe domestic violence and deep poverty and and racism. It was so baked into inequality in this country that to envision a more just society, we really have to face up to this as a country. And, you know, yesterday was Martin Luther King Day. It's it's Uh awkward, just is a great moment to keep reflecting Mm -hmm. on where we are as a country and Uh how we can envision a much more equitable world and a world without racism. Those recommendations are so much greater, would address so many more issues in our society beyond just domestic abuse. They're they're wonderful goals and objectives, and it's going to take many, many years, but it's good that you've pointed them out. I don't know how you would be able to judge this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Given the pressure and the increase now due to COVID on the number of incidents, and then the, the sort of the backlog or difficulty victims have had now to get um, get some relief and get into the process. And if we ever get, quote, over 
the pandemic. Do you have any idea what the backlog could be, what the lag time is on this? I mean, I think you're talking about case backlogs. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The need is, yeah. isn't going to just right. all of a sudden, once COVID is over. It, it, I mean, it's interesting that you highlight that because I think in New Jersey, there was a real effort to focus on the family docket and on the domestic violence docket sort of for a few reasons, you know, one of which is the importance of these cases. Another was that those cases could go forward um, in a virtual way. Mm-hmm. However, what we're seeing is that cases are starting, but they're not being completed and they're, they're taking multiple, multiple court appearances. So even on our docket, there is a really, mm-hmm. really large backlog. And wow. then on the criminal docket, I can't even imagine when that docket will be resolved because they haven't been able to run jury trials. And, you know, it's very challenging. Uh, we've had a couple cases where the police told the victim that nothing was going to happen, that the person was going to be immediately released. And I had to think about that because on the one hand, it's a very cynical view. It's not really what, it's not what law enforcement, they're not supposed to be doing that. Their job mm-hmm. is to take the report, make the arrest if there's probable cause, not to discourage a victim. But, but their prediction of what would happen is spot on. And, you know, people should understand that as they think about mm-hmm. what will happen if they call the police. It's always a very difficult dilemma whether to get police involved I think more needs to be done to keep victims safe. We've been pushing Mm -hmm. for, in New Jersey, for a provision called a criminal no contact. And we have that in New Jersey, uh, every, in a domestic violence case, when that is criminal, even if there isn't a restraining order, there generally is a no contact that Mm -hmm. the defendant is told about, but the victim actually There's no system for getting that information to the victim. So that's a big gap in safety that we're trying to close in New Jersey is to make sure that victims get that information. And, Mm -hmm. you know, our goal is not to, we we would like to decarcerate our country. But Mm -hmm. in the meantime, we also want to make sure that victims are kept safe as well. So I, I think it's going to be a long time before one could envision the backlogs being redressed. Kind of going back to, quote, normal again, which is tough in any case. So I know the report's just been uh, just been released and you probably haven't had or maybe you have started to get some feedback. But before we wrap up, where are you finding the most support and what are your next steps? Well, we're really at the beginning of trying to share our findings and we are living in, as we all know, unusual times. So it's a, it's a difficult moment to try to get as much attention as we'd like mm-hmm. to okay. the challenges that our clients are facing. We are anticipating a second part of this report that will be more focused on the courts and the police. And that will have some more specific and short-term recommendations. We are trying to raise the issue of the need for the courts to consider emergent and interim financial support for the victim, given that these cases are taking many, many months to resolve. And 
close connection between physical safety and economic well-being. So we're trying to do some outreach around that issue. And hopefully we'll also be supporting some some legislative uh, work as well down the road. Mm -hmm. So most of these things are going to require legislative changes, it sounds like. Certainly the, the bigger economic changes, the societal, at least within New Jersey, to the extent you can, changes. And those are leg- at the legislative level. I think the more visionary goals, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, we're okay. in some conversations about looking at data collection in New Jersey. We're always anxious to support our, our court system and really appreciate the efforts of the New Jersey courts to keep victims' safety sort of front of mind as they think about policies going forward. It's a very difficult time for, you know, those in government as well. And and we recognize Mm -hmm. that. Well, speaking of support and uh, a shortage of resources, uh, let me plug it because uh, you might prefer that, that as with most nonprofits, Partners is always looking for and depends on the support of generous public benefactors. If anybody listening wants to learn more about Partners or to support Partners' work, where can they find that information? So they can go to our website at www.pfwj.org. I would also just want to say that we've been talking about the plight of those who are living in deep poverty and and struggling with domestic violence. But as we spoke earlier, intimate partner violence affects people of all walks of life, all genders, all all gender Mm -hmm. identities. And, you know, I think another sort of thought to leave your listeners with is just all of our families are struggling with one thing or another in this day and age. And one, another way you can just help on a personal level is reach out to friends you haven't heard from, people who you're concerned about, and you know, just hurt to remember that there are lots of resources that are available for victims, lots of ways to get information and support, mm-hmm. you know, well beyond maybe separate, I should say, from, you know, seeking a restraining order or going to the police. And I also just, before we wrap up, want to give a shout out to uh, McCarter in English, who provided tremendous support in helping us get this report done and who are just a critical ally of the work that we do at Partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. And I know Partners relies on the volunteer attorneys from all different firms and different backgrounds. But thank you for that comment about just generally reaching out. This is a time when we can all Everybody needs more care and attention and giving more care and attention. And the idea of reaching out to people that you know is a great thing. So thank you for recommending that. Trish, thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Felicia. And I really appreciate your taking an interest in this topic that really does affect so many facets of our society and our criminal system but is one that often people would prefer not to think about. I appreciate your uh, raising awareness. Good. If you like what you've heard today, please go to helpme2understand.com to listen to more great episodes. Or better yet, 
Subscribe to receive new episodes as they are released. That's it for this episode of Help Me to Understand. If you like what you've heard, please go to our website, helpme2understand.com to listen to more great episodes. Or better yet, subscribe to receive new episodes as they are released. I'm so glad you can join me. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.